So we are going to continue through our sermon series in Luke today. We're going to pick up in Luke 23, right where we left off last week. We finished Luke 22. And uh, if you don't know, we've called this sermon series the incomparable Jesus, or as I'm probably going to say multiple times, incomparable, because that's the way I think the word should be pronounced. So we're calling it incomparable Jesus. And what that means is that there is nothing that we can stack up to Jesus that adds up to him. And the Webster Dictionary um, definition of this is eminent beyond comparison to be matchless. And so that's what we've been looking through, even if we haven't explicitly stated it every single week. We've been looking at how incomparable or incomparable Jesus is to everything else in the universe. And I am, as I said, a science, technology, engineering, and math nerd. And so things make sense to me with numbers. And this morning, we are going to look more into the incomparable nature of Jesus. And so the best way that I can think to describe this to you guys was through math. So has everybody had their coffee? Okay, good. We're starting off good. Right, if we can get the first slide up there, we're going to start easy. Okay, so this is a little bit of algebra. So we should all, I would think that all of us should be able to get this. 2 equals 1 plus x is a variable. That's the number we're trying to solve for here. So everybody at once, what is x? Okay, you guys have had your coffee. So this is an easy way to compare. So in this case, we're comparing the number 2 and the number 1, and we see that we have to add 1 to that number in order for it to equal. So if we can go to the next slide, Jordan. So we have a similar equation here. There's no actual numbers. And on the left side of the equation, you see that we have infinity. And that's going to be Jesus, right? We're, in, we're comparing the infinite God to something else. Now this N that's on the right-hand side of the equation, that's going to be a number. Now you, I want you to think of the biggest number you can possibly think of, Okay. Now realize, you can multiply the biggest number you can think of by that biggest number, and then multiply by that biggest number again, and again, and again, and again, and now you have some number that computers can't even comprehend. If we wrote numbers as tiny as we could on every single square inch of the earth, we could not write infinity, right? And so what we do is we try to solve for n, right? What is n in this situation? Regardless of what number we place there, we cannot add up to that infinity, so what happens is x actually ends up equaling infinity. We have to put infinity in that variable, which I think we have. There we go. And so when you get to higher level math, I know I have a few people in here. Josh over there, you get, when you get to higher level math, there are situations where you actually use infinity minus a number or infinity plus a number. But for our situation here, we've got infinity on both sides of the equation sign here. And so what that means that n is absolutely pointless. The only way, Lori's laughing, it's absolutely pointless. It doesn't matter what number we plug in there, we always have to put infinity. And so we, yeah, n stands for nothing. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> stands for nil. Thank you, Tom. So what we can conclude is that Jesus can only be compared to himself. We can try to per compare other things to him, but ultimately, it's incomparable. There's no way for us to stack it up against him. And so that's what we mean when we say that he is incomparable. Does that make sense? Okay, good. I was kind of worried that, okay, we can skip that slide, save it for the end. Nobody look. Nobody look at our punchline, okay? That's what we're working towards this morning, okay? So, no, what we're going to look at today, it's okay. 
What we're going to look at today is that Jesus is incomparable to those around him in, in Luke 23. And we're going to compare, which seems weird, but we're going to compare the actions and the motivations for the people in this passage to Jesus. And before we like hop into each individual, can you toss me my water? I'm getting excited about math, guys. No apologies. We're going to hop in and look at each individual, but before we do, we're going to read the passage as a whole so that we kind of have a top-down view of what's going on and understanding kind of the logistics or the dynamics between who's arguing what and who's doing what. And as I read through it, I want you guys to pay attention and ask yourself, what is motivating these individuals? What is causing them to act or say in the manner that they are acting? So if you guys can pick up uh, your Bibles, go to Luke 23. I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. Uh, it says, Then a whole company, the, the whole company of them, speaking of the priests in chapter 22, arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Then Pilate asked the chief priests and the crowds, or said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they are urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who, he, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time, side note for Passover. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocking him. Then arrayed in a sprint and splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other, that is, at odds. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him, behold, you, or before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Verse 18, if you, if you also like numbers, you've noticed there's no 17 there. That's uh, due to scribes over history um, basically deciding what needed to be edited, and this was years ago, this wasn't a recent thing. You can come to me and ask me more questions about it after, but I just wanted to point out there's not a mistake there. Um, some versions of it will actually include it. So verse 18, but they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of God. So big, chunky passage. But I really didn't want to 
cut anything out of it. I wanted us to read that in full because there's so much going on back and forth and back and forth. What we see is that the chief priests go in, they accuse Jesus, and they ultimately will not stop until they have what they want. Both Pilate and Herod declare Jesus not guilty. And by the end of it, we have Jesus delivered over to be crucified. So let's hop in and see kind of in more detail what's going on with these people. And let's start with the chief priests and teachers. So if we can go back to chapter 22, we see that ultimately they determined that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. That is, that he claimed to be God. But when he comes before, when they bring him before Pilate, that is not what they accuse him of. They accuse him of misleading the nation. That's equivalent to starting an insurrection. uh, Forbidding them to pay tax to Caesar and saying that he himself was king. So we have to ask, why is there this discrepancy in their claims? Well, simply put, they were willing to do whatever it took in order to get Jesus convicted. They were willing to disregard what they actually charged him for. They they were willing to lie. These were the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they were willing to lie in order to get Jesus convicted. They were willing to lie in order to exact revenge and to physically hurt this man that they were after. We know that they were desperate because they brought him to Pilate. And Pilate was somebody that was constantly at odds with the Jews. He desecrated their temple. He murdered Galileans. Um, You can read more about him. I believe it's Luke 13. Um, Simply put, he was not a man that was um, well-liked in the region. And the Jews definitely were not a fan of him for good reason. And yet they they bring Jesus to this man who they were at odds with, with they, who they couldn't stand because they knew that they had the best chance of getting him convicted and crucified. So, what do we see them do? Well, they start out just accusing him, and I'm going to read us a brief summary of how they ramp up their accusations. They get more and more and more angry. In verse 1, they simply accuse them. In verse 5, they are urgent in their accusation. In verse 10, It says they passionately accused Jesus in front of Herod. In verse 18, it says they all cried out together. See, they're turning into an angry mob. In verse 21, they kept shouting. Then in verse 23, the text says, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. See, despite all the authority that Pilate had, their voices prevailed. They were not going to stop yelling. They were not going to stop screaming. They're not going to, they're going to be like a little kid throwing themselves on the ground, throwing a tantrum, and so their mommy and daddy gave them the juice box. That hits home with me. I have lots of those situations. See, but doesn't this sound a lot like what happens on social media and in the political realm today? We just try to be louder and louder and louder until our voices are heard. And I'm not talking about if this is on the left or the right or in what domain, everybody does it. Go on social media. It's horrible. The loudest voice gets the most likes, gets pumped to the top. The loudest voice in media, news, whatever it may be, gets proclaimed. And that's what's happening here. And as Christians, we cannot desire to be the loudest thing in the world. If we try to be the loudest voice, if we try to just be loud for the sake of being heard, we are just going to be sucked into that vortex. We are going to be drowned out by what is going on in the world. We're going to become part of the problem. See, the loudest thing in the universe is the gospel. The loudest thing in the universe is the word of God. And if we're doing other, anything other than proclaiming the word of God 
and declaring the gospel and exalting Jesus above ourselves, there is no voice in us at all. We just become part of the problem. James 1, 19 through 22 helps us with this. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But, this is the big caveat here, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, the Bible is clear. We need to be defenders of the gospel. We need to not just listen to it, but we need to be doers of the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we go outside this building and start yelling at people from the corner saying, you're going to die and go to hell. That's not loving at all. See, we cannot desire to be the loudest voice. Hebrews 4.12 gives us an example of just how piercing the word of God is. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the word of God is the weapon that we yield in this world in order to cut down evil, to correct what is untruth, and to defend the gospel. We need to be in the word and exalting Jesus in order to do this effectively. We see here the chief priests, they knew it all. They had dedicated their lives to knowing it. And yet when the, when the time came, they didn't wield truth, but they wielded resentment and bitterness and anger and wrath. And they succumbed to becoming that loud noise of the world. So this text says that it discerns the intentions of our heart. So what was the heart issue that the chief priests had with Jesus? Well, the easiest way to say it is that he came in and he flipped their lives upside down. As I said, they were people who from young age had dedicated themselves to knowing the law, to living the law, to becoming a judge for the law. These chief priests were part of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court during the time. So they were responsible for not only knowing, but upholding what the law was to their people. And they knew so much about the law that they added laws, and they added laws to those laws. Everything that they knew was about those laws. And Jesus came in, and he said, I came to free all people, not just Israel. Jesus came in, and he said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And they're like, we thought our Messiah was going to be a political one. What do you mean you're, you're here to bring a sword? You're supposed to bring peace. What's going on here? Jesus literally went into the temple and overturned their tables. I, the, the, my personality, I literally want to flip this lectern to demonstrate it, but I know that's going to go poorly. Just picture, Jesus goes in and he literally flips the tables and says, what are you doing in my holy place? Jesus goes in and he literally flips the script on what they believe the kingdom, to, kingdom of God to be. And so they are extremely offended. And I think that they were most offended by the fact that he called out everything that they held dear. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And this must have been extremely offensive to them. If Jesus fulfilled the law, then they didn't have to teach it. They didn't really have to like uphold it or be judges of it. I mean, there was some like responsibility in that. But basically, Jesus came in and he said, Everything that you put value in, everything that you put your self-worth in, I am fulfilling. 
I'm completing. And so for them, it's like, what did I spend the last 25, 30 years of my life doing? Which sounds like not a long time, but they didn't live very long back then. They spent their entire life dedicated to this, and now Jesus is saying, you know, there's other things that are more important than that. The law is not everything. And so they were personally offended that Jesus would attack their very well-being. Jesus came in and destroyed the pragmatic and legalistic way that they were thinking and pointed them to the issue of their heart. And I want to ask us this morning, I lost my place, how do you handle Jesus when he comes in and disrupts your life? How do you handle when Jesus comes in and says, this thing right here that you hold dear, that you have made your kingdom, I want to take and turn into my kingdom. I want to flip the tables in your temple in order to exalt what is true and what is righteous. Most of the time, that's really, really hard. We see here the chief priests, they were convicted by the law, and yet they were blind to the Messiah in front of them. See, when I was preparing for this, I was reminded of a time four or five years ago at uh, one of our 133 prayer meetings on Wednesday nights. Uh, every one month, once a month, be there. We'll announce it when it comes. But it was one of our week- monthly prayer meetings, and I don't remember what exactly we were praying into or what song was being sung, but I remember God meeting me with them in that moment and saying, you know, it's really cool that you like have knowledge, but you have no wisdom. And I remember being like off-put, like, what do you mean? Like, I know all sorts of stuff. Like, I'm studying the Bible because I want to know about you. Like, what is this? And like, there was this brief moment where I was like the chief priest. I was like, who are you, Jesus, to come in and tell me this? And as I sat there and prayed, my heart was softened, and I realized how loving and how kind Jesus was to bring this to my attention. And I realized that I just wanted to know stuff because I wanted to know stuff. I'm kind of like Tim last week when he said that um, he just likes trivia. I really like trivia. Between Tim and I, we can like annihilate on a a trivia night somewhere. Mike too. And Jesus was pointing this out to me. He was saying, you have all these these facts. You have all this knowledge. But what what does that relate to the personal relationship that we're supposed to have? All you're doing is seeking these things and not seeking my heart. And Jesus was coming in and flipping what I held to be the most important thing on its face and saying, you need to repent of this and turn away from it and seek a relationship with me instead of just seeking knowledge. And I realized that there's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I want to say that in that moment, after I prayed, it wasn't like I was filled with like shame and sorrow, but I felt convicted and I felt empowered and I felt encouraged Because God, the God of all things, was meeting with me to say, hey, buddy, my love, I want to have a better relationship with you. You're kind of of missing out on a lot here. And these are the kind of relationships that I want us, or these are the kind of situations that I want us to see when we look at the chief priests here. Jesus wants to come in and invade our lives and cleanse the things that are not his kingdom and replace it with the things that are of his kingdom. So, The chief priests are flailing around. They're making more and more noise. They're being louder and louder. They're becoming an angry mob. Things are getting intense. We want our way. How does Pilate handle all this? Well, we know he caves. This is like, I mean, everybody knows. We've read the passage. Even if 
even if you're like seeking Christianity, you may have known, Pilate like gives him over. It was just weird because at face value, it seems like Pilate wants to do what's right. He, he recognizes what is truth, and he recognizes what he justly should do, and yet he doesn't do it. We see that three times he declares Jesus not guilty. He declares him not guilty four times if you count his, his recall of Herod's not guilty verdict. Not only does he do it in front of the chief priests and the teachers, but he brings in the rulers. He brings in the people. He tries to make this a public thing and say, this guy is not guilty. Like, listen to me. I have the authority to declare his innocence or his guilt, and I am saying not guilty. He seemed highly convicted of it. And even though he knew the truth, those convictions, I postulate to you guys this morning, were not the biggest convictions in his heart. The biggest conviction in he, that he had in his heart was to look out for number one. The biggest conviction that he had was to look out for himself. Underneath all this firm talk, all this debating and trying to convince the people, when it came to the end of it, he folded because he wanted to seek his own righteousness. Look at his language. He says, look, nothing deserving death has been done to him. He's pleading with them. In verse 20, it says explicitly that he desired to release him. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why? Why? He has done no evil. You can feel the tension. It's like a movie. I wanted to go back and rewatch The Passion of the Christ to see if, how well they did this, but ran out of time. But it's, it's like a movie. You can feel the tension. It's like, why? Why? I don't want to do this. He's like the people in the movies who like, have like the knife or the gun, and they're like, don't make me do this. Don't make me. See, on the outside, he recognized what was right, but when it came to it, he betrayed truth, and he betrayed what was just. So if he wasn't motivated by truth, let's take a look at what actually motivated him, himself. And we see that right off the bat, he just wanted to dismiss this case. He came into town for Passover, expecting to be there for a few days, release somebody, have a good time, throw a party at the temple. I don't know what they would have done, but I imagine they would have celebrated that he was in town. And instead, he gets this case slammed in front of him. In verse 3, he says, I find no guilt in him. And if we look at the Greek of that, or let me, let me read it. So verse 3, he said, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so, meaning Jesus answered. And if you look at the Greek version of this, the pronoun you is fronted in the sentence. So it says, you are the king of the Jews. And I just picture Pilate like looking Jesus up and down and being like, looking at the priest, like, you brought me this guy? You know, Jesus wasn't, like, we know he wasn't this, like, miraculously dressed, like, nice pants or nice, uh, I want to say toga, but it's not toga, nice robe. You know, he, he, I know, completely wrong. But he wasn't dressed like a king. He was meek, and he was mild, and he was humble. And then after, after the events of chapter 22, he had been beaten and spit on and mocked. So he, he's presented before Pilate, and Pilate's like, this guy, a king, like, get this out of here. I have better things to attend to. And we see him do this again. The first chance that he gets, 
he pawns Jesus off to somebody else. It says that he learns that Jesus was a Galilean, and upon hearing that, he remembered that Herod was in town. And Herod was the governor who had uh, precedence over Jesus as well. During that time, if there was somebody that committed a crime, you could either take him to the governor of the location where the crime was committed, or you can take him to the governor of their residence. And so Herod was the, the governor of Jesus by residence. And so, Herod, so Pilate's thinking, yes, I don't have to deal with this guy. I can send him over to Herod. If Herod finds him guilty, he'll take him back to Galilee. He'll convict him. He'll charge him. Whatever it may be, I won't have to deal with this ever again. And unfortunately, Herod sent him back. So Pilate gets him back. He's thinking, what am I going to do to get this out of my hair? So the next thing we see him do is he tries to appease the chief priests. He tries to appease them. We see that he, he vehemently, to use the text's words, he vehemently defends Jesus, says that he's not guilty. He declares it multiple times. And then in verse 16 it says, I will therefore punish and release him. And it's really easy to skim over that. And I read it over and over and I was like, what is going on here? Like, how unjust of a court would it be if any time somebody was deemed not guilty, they're like, well, you're not guilty, but, you know, just in case, we're going to slap this punishment on you. And so we see that Pilate is just trying to appease the, the chief priest. He's like, if they're not going to accept that I can just release him, I'm going to try to, like, sneak in the middle and just give him a light little punishment. That way they're happy. That way Jesus doesn't have to die. Everybody's happy in my kingdom. Rome doesn't have to hear about this. I'll be an awesome governor. But we know that does not work. The chief priests cry out. It says, they cried out together, demanding with loud cries, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate, as the governor, his two main jobs were to ensure Roman influence in the region and to keep peace of the local people as they, um, in, as they Romanized them. And if anything were to happen, if he was to cause an insurrection or an uprising that threatened the authority of Rome in the region, he would have been ousted and probably murdered or killed for it. And we actually see historically, a few years after this, he allowed that to happen in a different situation, and that's what happened. They said, come back to Rome, Pilate. We got something for you. You're out of there. And we don't need to go into the rest of the history of Pilate. But this was paramount to his success as a governor. He could not allow an uprising or a mob to control what was going on and ultimately allow Rome to hear that he was misleading the people in that region. And so as we see this, as their voices prevailed, you can see Pilate like starting to like backstep. And it's like, okay, what's going on here? Like, I don't want to deal with this. This is becoming too much. And that's the moment he says, in John it says he washes his hands and he says, have him. He succumbs to the pressures of the mob. Not because he's convicted of the truth, even though he knows the truth, but because he's convicted that he must not get kicked out of office. That he is the most important person. And we as people today, we have the same kind of feelings. You know, we, we see something we like, we know that that's true, we know that that's just, or maybe we know that this is untrue, or I know that I should not do this, and then we succumb to the desires of our hearts. We succumb to the flesh or to external factors that are pressuring us, whatever it may be, and the only solution to this is to ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Say, Lord, I need you. 
He is the only way that we can overcome this world. We cannot overcome it on our own. So, we got the chief priests, we got Pilate. What about Herod? There's some sad news. He did not act any better. All Herod wanted to do was to be entertained. He said he knew Jesus and he was excited to see him, essentially because he wanted Jesus to go up there and juggle some balls and do a magic trick and he wanted to be entertained. The crazy thing about this is Herod had God in the flesh before him and it says he questioned him and he was silent. Jesus didn't speak a single word to him. I think that uh, Herod's heart was so hardened, that was a lot of H's, Herod's heart was so hardened that Jesus knew that there was nothing he could say to him that would have been worthwhile. Now, there, uh, scripture says to not cast your pearls before swines. And I think Jesus was doing this here, and he just stayed silent. It's like, I have nothing to offer you. And so it's tragic, because Herod, ultimately, when he didn't get what he wanted, what did he do? He dressed up Jesus like a jester, and they mocked him, and they sent him back. He wanted nothing to do with truth. He wanted nothing to do with asking the supposed God to enlighten him. He wanted his own thing. The problem is that Herod treated Jesus with a consumeristic attitude. He thought that Jesus had nothing to offer him but this entertainment value. How often do we do that with Jesus in our own hearts? How often do we say, Lord, I want this, but I don't want to give myself. I don't want to, to surrender to you. And one way that you can find out if you tend to, to lean into that area, and that I struggle with this, is to look at your prayer life and ask, what am I doing in my prayer life? How am I conversing with God? And I want to preface this by saying, we should always seek God. He wants us to bring our cares and our concerns and our needs before him. He is a God that cares deeply about what's going on in the inside. He cares about our heart. He cares about our afflictions. But I want us to look at our prayer life and ask, is that the only thing that I bring before God? Do I only pray when I need something or I need help or I need deliverance out of whatever it may be? See, Jesus actually desires for us to surrender all of us to him through prayer. He desires us to go to him and be like, Today was a great day, Lord. I did this, and you opened these doors, and you blessed me in this way, and you are so marvelous and so splendid. He longs to have a relationship with us. Anybody who's married in here, picture, if you will, that every single day of your marriage, your spouse came home and was like, I need you to do this. I want this from you. Help me fix this. And that was all your relationship was. You would have a horrible marriage horrible. And so likewise, we can't be treating God in this attitude. We can't be looking to God and just being like, we need all these things. That is a sign that you have a consumeristic heart. And this is just one way that you can identify what's going on in your heart. There's other ways we can ask other questions. I invite you to, to pray and ask God to highlight those things in your life. Tim Keller describes prayer as this. I love Tim Keller. He's so wise. Prayer is both conversation and encounter with God. We must know the awe of praising his glory, the intimacy of finding his grace, and the struggle of asking his help, all of which can lead us to know the spiritual reality of his presence. Prayer, then, is both awe and intimacy, struggle and reality. Let me read that again. Prayer is then both awe 
and intimacy, struggle and reality. So we must have a well-rounded prayer life. So, Herod's wonderful because he points us to the consumeristic nature of our hearts. So we've gone through Herod, we've gone through Pilate, we've gone through the chief priests. What do we see in common between all three of these people? Well, if we, if we go back to our math problem, they're the N in that, that math equation. They are the finite number. They are the imperfect beings in this story. And so we're going to look at what Jesus did. And Jesus is the only one in this story who acted out of uh, the desire to help other people. Everybody else that we see here, Herod, or sorry, um, Pilate, he wanted to make sure that he stayed in office. The chief priests, they wanted revenge. Herod, he wanted entertainment. They were all inward-looking. The only person that we see in this text outward-looking is Jesus Christ. He is the finite part of that equation. Oh boy, I'm pulling a Kelly on this one. I'm going to have to hurry up. So, how does Jesus respond to the accusations and the events before him? My first point, at well too far into the sermon, is that Jesus is incomparable in his humility. If you have a red-letter Bible, go ahead and open it up, and I want you to take a look at how many red letters you see in these 25 verses. Four. Four. Isn't that remarkable? If you go to uh, the book of John, John's kind of a, a longer, drawn-out account of what goes on. And even in this account, Jesus speaks uh, six sentences, including this one, you have said so. And every time that he speaks, he speaks not to say that they are wrong, that his truth is better, that he needs another um, person to come in and, and defend him, or say, objection! Objection! You're false! You're false! Get out of here! I'm God! No, in fact, he only speaks to declare the truth of his kingdom. So we have to ask, why does he do this? I'm jumping ahead. I wanted us to see the stark contrast between how loud the chief priests were and how silent Jesus was. He speaks his peace in the beginning, and as they ramp up and they get louder and louder and louder, we see Jesus saying nothing. He humbles himself before the very people that accuse and persecute him. So why does Jesus do this? Point number two, Jesus is incomparable in his obedience. He knows that the plan of his father is much more important than what's going on around him. See, everybody else was worried about an internal struggle or an external struggle, where Jesus was worried about an eternal struggle. So, I think we have it on the board here. Jesus is not concerned about the external or internal, but the eternal. Jesus in this moment had an eternal perspective of what was going on, and he was not going to allow anything that was going on around him or his own convictions in his heart to stop what the Father had for him, that he knew that he must die for these people. He knew that he must die for our sake and for the sake of all humanity. See, there's one person that we haven't really touched on, and that's Barabbas. Barabbas in verse, uh, where, we are, where are we here? Verse 19, says a man, he, they described him as a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city, 
and for murder. Murder. This is both a political and a social criminal, the lowest of low. Historians say that it was known that he had done these crimes. It wasn't like they're going to try him and have all these different questions. They're basically bringing him in as a formality. And so we have this perfect, spotless, righteous king who laid himself down and took the punishment of Barabbas. It's kind of interesting. Jesus was accused by the chief priests of misleading the nation. That means that he was starting an uprising or starting an insurrection, which is the very thing that Barabbas was, con- was convicted for. That's why he was there. And yet we see Jesus goes off to be crucified and Barabbas is let off free. And this is the gospel. We are Barabbas. We are the ones that deserve wrath. We are the ones that deserve God's punishment. And yet Jesus goes before the cross and he doesn't cry out and say objection, but he takes that pain for our sake. This is a well-worn text for sermons. It's preached often. And I think one of the issues of it being preached so often is that we hear it and we say, yeah, we're Barabbas, cool. But I want us to understand we're not just Barabbas. If we are talking about an incomparable God, we are Barabbas, but we are also Herod as we long to just ask Jesus for things. We are the chief priests as we accuse Jesus of things. We are Pilate as we seek our own gain instead of seeking his kingdom. See, we're every single person in this story. We are part of that N in the equation. We're part of the finite. And I want us to ask, have you guys ever, have you guys ever thought about what was going through Jesus' mind during this? He's silent, and I'm just sitting there studying and thinking, like, what must he have been thinking in this odd situation where he has to submit himself to these people? And we know because of Jesus' character, he wasn't sitting there thinking bitter, angry thoughts, going, if Pilate only knew who he was speaking to, if Herod only knew who he was speaking to, he would be terrified. I could smite him right now. These people, how do they even treat me like this? I am the king of kings. I am the princes of princes. I am the God of all gods. How are they treating me like this? I don't think Jesus was thinking any, any of that. I think that as Pilate stood there and betrayed him, Jesus was thinking, my child, I submit myself to you unto death. I must die for you. And as Herod mocked him, I think Jesus was thinking, my child, I submit myself to you unto death. I must die for you. And as the chief priest demanded for his life, Jesus thought, my children, I have submitted myself unto you. I must die for you. And as people post-cross in a redeemed world, Jesus says to us, my children, I have already died for you. See, every other person in this passage was desiring their own gain. Jesus was the only one who desired everybody else's gain. My last point for this morning is that Jesus is incomparable in his compassion and love for others. There's nobody else in this story that stacks up to him. See, in fact, we can't stack up to Jesus. The beautiful thing about this passage and about the gospel itself is that the more we understand 
how flawed we are, how imperfect we are, and the more that we understand how marvelous and how brilliant and how splendid Christ is, the bigger we understand or the greater that we understand the gospel. The greater that we realize just how big of a sacrifice Jesus made for us, the more we understand that he had everything to lose and he did it essentially for nothing. He gave himself for our sake. The Bible says that our righteousness is like dirty rags to God. And yet Christ did that for us. So I want us to put the equation back on the board that we, um, we put up a little early. You guys have probably been thinking about the whole time. Okay? So we have infinity being Christ. And we have this little stick person. And that's us. And see, what Jesus does is he sees this equation and he says, my beloved, there is no way that you are ever going to be able to solve this equation. It is always going to be invalid. It is always going to be not equal. You're going to try and try and try to plug in bigger and bigger numbers to be better and better. But in the end, it is never going to be validated. And what he does is he goes to the cross and he crosses that, that equal sign and he says, I am the one who is going to validate this equation. I am going to submit my righteousness to you. Therefore, when the Father looks at this as the divine mathematician, he looks at it and he says, eh, math checks out. Looks good. And that's the gospel. I love that I can use math to explain the gospel. It's so brilliant. You know God created math, side note. He created math. Thank God for math. But people, we are like everybody else in this story. We are flawed, we are sinful, we are wicked, we are decrepit. And that doesn't mean that we have to hang our heads in shame, but it means that we can understand how marvelous it is that Jesus comes to our side of the equation and dies for us. He submits himself to us. He says, child, I must die for you. I submit myself unto you. And he allows us into his kingdom. He allows us to have perfect relationship with us. He allows the Father, as I said, to look at us and say, that's valid. That checks out. I love this person, right? And so I invite you to stand. We're going to um, move into communion.